Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to episode 17 of the Equip Project podcast. We're in the middle of a conversation about love and sex. In the first episode, we really covered a lot of ground, Jim, just discussing how the Christian view of sex is telling us a better story about life and human flourishing. In this episode, we're going to address two of the key objections to the Christian sexual ethic. And after we do that, we're going to move on and think a little bit more practically um, about some of the ways the Christian view of sex plays out in the lives of young Christians. I know um, you're really looking forward to this second part of the conversation. As much as I look forward to the last one. (laughs) And I I can't wait uh, to get stuck into it either. We're going to start by talking about love. Um, Because in the last episode, you said that love comes to us in distinctive forms. You talked about the fact there is affection, uh, there's friendship, there's erotic love, and there's altruistic love. At their most basic level, all these expressions of love are about willing the good of the other. But their distinctiveness is a crucial aspect of love's beauty and meaning. So it isn't correct to say love is love. Not all love is sexually expressed. That's right. In biblical thought, the unique thing about erotic or romantic love is that it's designed to flourish in the secure space called marriage. So sexual union isn't a mere bodily function. And when somebody does treat their their own body as nothing more than a physical organism driven by physical urges, they are isolating sex from the rich inner life of the lover and the beloved committed to building an entire life together. And we set that biblical vision for sexuality against the view of sex found in today's culture. And it's very different, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, young adults today are taught one of two contradictory ideas in this culture. Either sex is nothing, or else sex is everything. It's either just a bodily function of no moral significance at all, or else sex becomes the regulating principle which gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And it can end up almost like a religious worldview. But both those ideas miss the beauty of a faithful, lifelong oneness of psychological and spiritual union built over years within the secure space of marriage. Excellent. And as I mentioned previously in this episode, we're going to address two of the main objections to that view of love and sex. And once we've discussed them, we're going to move on and we're going to get a little bit more practical um, and even more awkward for you, Jim, as we think through what the implications of this worldview are. And there's two big objections. We're going to start with the objections. There's two big ones. And the first is raised by people who have no sympathy for the Christian view of sexuality. And the second is raised by people who have quite a lot of sympathy for it. The first one is about sexual desire. And the question goes something like this. Why would God create within all of us this powerful thing called sexual desire and then tell us to repress it? It just doesn't seem natural or even fair. Well, the first thing to say is that this objection seems to be entirely reasonable. The answer can't be given as a quick soundbite or or a simple one-liner. I'm afraid we're going to have to build it up in a more methodical way. So I'm going to give a three-level answer. Okay, And at level one, my point is going to be that sexual desire is only one component in the overall architecture of the human personality. So suppose one evening, Ollie, after your evening meal, you and Rachel are sitting on the sofa in your living room. And suddenly, without warning, my car comes crashing through the front window, demolishing your front wall in the process. You're very destructive in your (laughs) illustrations. (laughs) I'm exhibiting some inner rage here, obviously. But anyway, once I have clambered out of the car, you might feel obliged to ask me what on earth was going on. Now, there are some reasonable explanations that I might give. But imagine if I shrugged my shoulders and said, this machine has a really powerful internal combustion engine. It has gallons of highly flammable fuel inside it. 
So why should I repress all that energy? You might reasonably point out that there is more to a car than an engine and a, a transmission shaft. Cars also contain steering mechanisms and braking systems. They're also designed to be driven by a skilled and capable driver. So it would be equally absurd, would it not, for someone to explain sexual promiscuity by shrugging their shoulders and saying, I have lots of sexual desire within me. There's nothing wrong with sexual desire, but it's only one component in the overall architecture of the human personality. This idea that desire erupts from our biology with an unstoppable energy, well, that might be a reasonable explanation for an animal's behaviour, but it will not do for human beings. If I was a bear, there's a sentence I never thought (laughs) I would say, but if I was a bear, when my back was itchy, I would stand up against a tree and rub the itch until it went away. Whenever I desired food, I would eat berries or tourists. Whenever I felt sleepy, I would hibernate. For a bear, desire is king. I want, therefore I am. That's true of all animals, actually, not just bears. So the problem with enthroning desire as king is that it reduces a human being to a mere animal. Human beings were designed to develop and appreciate all sorts of nuanced moral qualities. So we value things like perseverance and erudition. So the human personality is equipped with all sorts of balancing mechanisms that allow us to prioritize long-term gains over instant gratification. So that was my first point. Sexual desire is a God-given thing, but it is only one component in our makeup. When we elevate it to king over our lives, we reduce ourselves to mere animals. You said just now that desire is a God-given thing, but surely the Bible is really negative about our desires. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That all sounds really negative. Yeah, well, that brings me to the second level of my treatment of sexual desire. It is true that the energy we call sexual desire is not intrinsically wrong. None of us would be around without it. But at this point, we need to introduce the Bible's radical diagnosis of the human condition. This thing called sin, this spiritual cancer that has corrupted and disordered every part of us. So, like all other energizing elements within our makeup, desire has become disordered. The Apostle James talks about desire being conceived in the heart, turning it into this thing called lust. And what he's saying there is that when we give desire a life of its own, when we open up our heart to it for selfish reasons, then desire can degrade into the thing called lust. And that is one of the key reasons why Christians set their faces against using our feelings to determine our identity, because human feelings are disordered, so they make a wretched foundation on which to build our self-understanding. So if I understand you correctly, Jim, What you're saying is that sexual attraction is a normal aspect of human existence. But we can think of lust as the disordered desire to have what we want, regardless of God's described best or others' ultimate good. That explains why we are not to let it rule us. Yeah, and and what you've just said brings us neatly to level three. So let me just review. So far I've argued that sexual desire is only one component in the overall architecture of the human personality. Then I argued that in the sinful heart, desire can become corrupted into this selfish, destructive thing called lust. But the final level is to say that corrupted desires can then rule over us. I was thinking of how to uh, explain this point, and and I remember a story uh, I once read uh, about a a paramedic who received an anonymous call um, reporting that a heroin addict uh, was on the the verge of death in some, I, I don't know, some abandoned apartment building. And when he arrived on the scene, 
he found the addict huddled in a corner, shivering and unresponsive. And around him were piles of rotten trash, used syringes, lighters, spoons, all the paraphernalia of, the, of, of heroin addiction. And the paramedic said that the scene was terrifying. But he added this really curious thing. He said it was the first time that he fully understood what worship looked like. See, when, when I worship something, I am saying that it has ultimate value in my life. It is the ordering principle that regulates and governs my daily life. It's a signal to myself what life is finally about. Now, that is a really extreme example, of course, but it is an example of the principle that disordered desire can end up ruling over us. We become enslaved to our desires. So in practical terms, I'm talking about the way neural pathways develop in the brain. See, when we allow disordered desire to take over, those desires build something that probably looks a bit like a six-lane motorway uh, through the human brain. So the normal daily traffic of human thoughts and interactions always take that broad road to instant gratification. The road less travelled, the road to higher moral qualities, becomes like an overgrown path through a jungle. We have to hack our way through it. And that takes hard work. And it's so much easier to take the motorway, to take the path of the junkie, to get our quick fix of dopamine. Now, I know that was all a very complicated answer to an apparently simple question. But the human personality is a complicated thing, and anyone who argues otherwise is just reducing us to a bear with an itch. The second big objection to the Christian view of sexuality comes from people who are actually much more sympathetic to the Bible's view. Maybe they do reject the meaningless, transactional sex of the hookup scene. They can see the beauty of a stable and long-term relationship. But they think that the idea of a lifelong marriage, the idea of complete monogamy, if you like, is far too restrictive. How would you respond to, to someone in that camp? Yeah, I came across a, a phrase in an article in The Spectator recently which described the sort of people you're talking about as serial monogamists. <laughs> okay, So for the serial monogamist, life is constructed as a series of loving, sexually active relationships. But love, like a flower, never lasts, so we're told. The fresh bloom always withers away. Love dies. And so the time comes when, uh, to quote that well-known theologian Gwyneth Paltrow, um, <laughs> conscious uncoupling should occur. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but what's actually wrong with that idea? For many people, it sounds potentially more realistic than the biblical idea of committing to a lifelong covenant. Why say, till death do us part, when it's more honest to say, till love do us part? Okay, three very quick responses to that. First, Gwyneth Paltrow's idea of conscious uncoupling hides the awful pain of divorce and relationship breakdown. You can't end an intimate, sexually active relationship the way you switch to a new electricity provider. There is a world of pain involved. I, I don't say this lightly, Ollie, but I sometimes think that the pain of divorce is worse than the pain of bereavement. I can remember Ruth holding my hand when she was in hospital. And she squeezed my hand and smiled at me. At least we haven't done anything wrong, Jim, she said. You see, there was no bitterness or anger or sense of betrayal when I lost Ruth. And I haven't even mentioned the impact of relationship breakdown on children. There's a guy called Andrew Root, and he's published a book recently called Children of Divorce. And his main point is that divorce fractures a child's sense of self. At the very deepest level of their personhood, they wonder if they were ever loved. I think that's really profound, Jim. I've never thought about it in quite that stark a way. In the last episode, you quoted that verse from the Song of Songs. It said, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. 
jealousy is fierce as the grave. There's something about romantic love that longs for permanency. There's a forever to it. No one stands in the moonlight in those early days of a romantic relationship and whispers, I'll be yours for the next 18 months. I'm going to tell the audience that that was your third take at that last <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I was just imagining saying that, whispering that in some of those early days of, of dating Rachel. I don't think it would have gone down too well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess the interesting thing about this issue of serial monogamy is to ask, why do people want to live like that? Let's think about the motivation. There is a, a lady in the Bible who lived exactly like that. We meet her in John chapter 4. Her life had been structured uh, into a series of sexually active relationships. And by the time she meets Jesus, she's on her fifth one. And the story is absolutely brilliantly told. Um, we see her walking through the blazing heat of the noonday sun to replenish her supply of water. And the water jar, that cultural artifact, is a metaphor for her relational life. One moment it was full to the brim with joy and satisfaction, but it soon drained away and had to be filled up again. And the woman's problem was that she was looking for ultimate satisfaction in human relationships. And that places far too heavy a weight on any human relationship. In that story, the Lord Jesus famously offers her living water, a spiritual satisfaction that will never run dry. So perhaps serial monogamists fall into the trap of placing too much weight on their relationships. No human relationship can fill the void created when we are out of relationship with God. Yeah. Now, the final thing I would say is that serial monogamists are not close to the Bible's idea of marriage. They may think they are, but in fact, they are very far from it. I often think people like that don't really get marriage. I mean, they choose the best partner they can find to help them on their journey through life. Someone who will comfort and support them, take away the loneliness, perhaps. But Christian marriage isn't two consumers helping each other along the journey of self-actualization. In Christian thought, when two people marry, they are committing to something much bigger than themselves. They are committing to a covenant. And it's only within the security of that space that a married couple can achieve the honesty to contend with each other. I love the way Jordan Peterson talks about his relationship with his wife. He says that she is as interested in the person he will become as she is interested in the person he is now. And only a marital covenant can act as the crucible needed to forge that sort of relationship. You know that phrase, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Without that strength of the covenant, there is only the endless fragility of feelings. I want us to switch gears now, Jim, and begin to think about some of the practical questions facing young Christians living in a culture like ours. This is the bit you've probably been dreading more than anything. This is exactly the part of the conversation I am most dreading. Because I, <laughs> well, to be serious, I, I don't just want to dish out helpful advice or rules for dating or anything like that. I mean, why should anybody care what I think about these things? I mean, the Christian scene is littered with books like that. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure they have done much good. Yeah, to be honest, Jim, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of stuff out there which is actually potentially a hindrance even in this area. Um, why is it, do you think, Jim, that books on these topics aren't all that helpful? Well, there's a big risk that we reduce the whole conversation to a legalistic set of rules. Holiness in life is all about loyalty to a person. It's about following Christ as he uses us to tell the better story of how to live. It's not about making and keeping rules. But I'll, I'll do my best to make some <laughs> random responses to the questions people have been asking you. I really want to come back to that question of legalism shortly, Jim. 
Um, but let's first ask a few really practical questions. So the first one I want us to address is how can a young Christian couple keep themselves from sexual sin? There's a repeated refrain in the song, I think it's repeated three times in the Song of Songs, which says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Most scholars take that to mean that sexual desire should not be deliberately stimulated unless it can be consummated in sexual intercourse. So it would follow that it is unwise to stir up desire in each other before marriage. It's much more important for a couple in a relationship to get to know each other intellectually first, find out how each other's minds work, debate things, learn from each other, and then form the habits of being kind and considerate to the other, work together in teams for the benefit of others. And it's those sorts of activities which provide the psychological and spiritual framework that ultimately gives meaning to physical intimacy. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Jamin. And I'd add, I think when young people ask the question, how far is too far, it's kind of missing the point as well, because uh, essentially often the, the logic behind that is kind of anything up until actually sexual intercourse itself is um, is kind of acceptable. And actually from your response there, I think it's clear that the emphasis in a dating relationship should be different. Um, I like that that point that you men- mentioned about finding out how other, each other's minds work, debate things, learn from each other, those kind of points. I think those principles are key. Yes, you're always getting to know a person, not a body. I think I think that's the the essence of the Christian sexual ethic. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fundamental. And kind of tied then to to that point, Jim. What about going away on holiday together? <clears throat> One of our jobs uh, as Christians is to live distinctive Christian lives, so that non Christians become curious enough about our beliefs to ask us about them. At that point, says the Apostle Peter, we are to give a reason for the living hope within us. But the whole process starts with us living in a way that makes no sense to the non-Christian. Now, if a young Christian couple go away on holiday together, everybody is going to assume that they are sexually active. So they aren't providing a distinctive Christian witness. It's much better to go away with family or take day trips to Port Rush than damage your witness. And for people who think that's unfair, you need to grow up. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are being killed in North Africa for their faith. So get a sense of proportion. If a little sacrifice about vacations helps arouse non-Christians' curiosity about your values, then that makes it worthwhile. I think that's huge, Jim, and, and really helpful. The whole issue of purity is made more difficult because of the stuff we watch on TV, uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and the like, uh, movies as well. They've all normalized sexualized content in a way that would have been regarded as shocking, or even, I would say, pornographic, about uh, five years ago or more. How should young Christians navigate that area of life? Look, I'm not going to give out rules here. I think the strategic answer (laughs) is to advise young Christians to become more interesting people. (laughs) If you spend all your leisure time slumped in front of a screen, demanding that your visual cortex get stimulated, then I will find you a very boring person. So the answer here is not to switch off the TV for a few moments, tut loudly, and then switch it back on again. The answer is to make the profound decision to be less boring. I love talking to people who are slightly obsessive. Maybe they love old buildings or Russian literature or gardening. You can see their brains light up when they get talking about something they love. I was driving up from Dublin last week listening to Dvorak 9 at ear-splitting volume, and I kept thinking, this is just fantastic. The next day I had a conversation with a member of the church about artificial intelligence. It got pretty intense, but we both enjoyed it hugely. Now, maybe all those things leave you cold. But there's something wrong with you if you have absolutely no passionate interests. If all you do is watch Love Island and Strictly Come Dancing, then you need to repent 
of being an unimaginably boring human being. Now, you have to repent of other things as well if you're watching Love Island, but, but being boring is the most important. You clearly have no mental furniture whatsoever. So become obsessed with something and then find people who will argue with you about your obsession. Okay, so in, in Philippians 4, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, he's not just talking about religious things here. He's talking about the engineering challenge of a bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland, or the search for a proper way to store electrical power and batteries, or the best trade deal between the UK and the EU. I think Paul is talking about the mental health that comes from thinking about wholesome external realities. So my point is that people who only get stimulated by sexually explicit or violent images have entirely vacuous minds. Solve that problem and the Netflix issue will slowly go away. I think that's a really interesting way to answer that question, Jim, and kind of <laughs> quite, quite a Jim-like answer as well. But I, I think that's really helpful. And really, um, I, I think if, if young Christians like myself got hold of that, um, it would be of real benefit and value to us. I think what you're doing as well is you're telling the better story of Christianity. A great deal of the, the so-called purity books rely on rules. And all that seems to do is induce guilt when you fail to live up to those rules. I sometimes wonder if young Christians fall into two traps in this area of life. Either we go down the road of legalism, which essentially tries to use guilt to generate behavioral change, or else we embrace a sense of brokenness, which normalizes sexual sin. I think that's very true, Ollie. Uh, so let me start with your second one, the, the, the idea of brokenness first. It's become fashionable in some evangelical circles to replace the word sin with the word brokenness. And I think that's really unhelpful because it downplays moral responsibility. God treats us seriously as moral personal agents, so it cannot be right to reduce ourselves to an object of self-pity. I agree wholeheartedly, Jim, but I guess the question is, does that not lead us back to the problem of legalism and guilt? No, I don't think so. The thing which both errors miss is the Christian concept of forgiveness. I'm increasingly of the view that young Christians don't really understand forgiveness. Think about how sexual sin has wrecked the lives of so many young believers. They think to themselves, has my sin made me unsavable? How could God love me when I loathe myself? How can I possibly serve the Lord when I keep sinning sexually? I have ruined my testimony. So how could I ever be used by God? Now, all those questions come from people who do not understand the depths of true forgiveness. The psychologically healthy thing to do here is to repent. Repent deeply and thoughtfully, and then receive the cleansing flow of forgiveness. Remember, the blood of Jesus just doesn't provide legal justification. It provides cleansing, cleansing for a defiled conscience. As 1 John says, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all unrighteousness. So here's the acid test to see if you really understand forgiveness. Once you have genuinely repented of your sin, confessed it, and accepted God's free gift of forgiveness, can you walk out of that conversation with God with your head held high or not? If you can, then you understand forgiveness. If you can't, then you don't. I think that's a wonderful way to think of God's forgiveness, Jim. I guess the challenge comes in when we repeatedly um, engage in sinful behavior. Uh, and the question arises, do we just keep asking for forgiveness over and over and over again? A thousand times, yes. Always keep your account short with God. Now, of course... As Christians, we may face the consequences of our sins, but we will never face the penalty of our sin. 
what does it mean for us to face the consequences of our sin? Well, in Galatians 6, Paul is writing to believers when he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let's think about Paul's metaphor there. Let's imagine for reasons I cannot begin to comprehend. God asks a farmer to plant a field of barley. But in a moment of willful rebellion, the farmer plants a field of wheat. Well, in due time, the crop grows up and the farmer stands looking at what he has done. And he repents before God for having disobeyed such a clear command. And of course, the Lord will forgive him, as he does any truly penitent sinner. But here's the thing. There's still a whacking great field of wheat outside the farmer's front door. True believers are always promised protection from the penalty of sin. If you are a true believer, you will never face the wrath of God for your sin. But nowhere in Scripture is a true believer promised protection from the consequences of her sin. A man reaps what he sows, says Paul. So suppose I drink a pint of methylated spirits every day. Eventually I cry out to God, ask him to forgive me, I will be forgiven. But my liver will still be wrecked. I have been protected from the penalty of my sin, but not from its consequences. So in the context of this conversation about love and sex, young Christians can always be forgiven for sexual sin. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. But we shouldn't imagine that we will necessarily be protected from the consequences of our sin. That's right. So it's much easier, for example, for a young married couple, neither of whom have had a previous sexual partner, to develop an open and trusting level of intimacy. Or take a young man who has filled his mind with pornographic images. He shouldn't expect it to be easy to develop true intimacy with his wife, because sin has consequences. In order to get us back on track for a limited period of time, we may have to accept the discipline of God in our lives. But that discipline will always be the discipline of a loving father. So the big message here, just as we close, the big message for young Christians is to live out the better story of Christian sexuality. And remember that when we fail, make sure you do the psychologically healthy thing of repenting so that the cleansing flow of forgiveness can return into your life. Thanks, Jim. I certainly have found these two episodes really helpful. And I think the story Christianity tells with respect to sexuality is by far and away better than the one told by our culture. I'm sure um, you guys listening have questions off the back of, of these two episodes, and we'd love to hear those questions. Do get in touch with us um, via our email, theequipproject at gmail.com, or send us a message via Instagram. But thanks so much for listening. Uh, we really enjoy having your company, um, and we're so grateful that you're on this journey with us. We'll be back next week for episode 18. Which hopefully will be something that I actually enjoy talking about. <laughs> Veganism, maybe, Jim. <laughs> we, we, we've been waiting for that one. 